I'll start with this, kind of a little fascinating article by John Dickinson in his book, Is Jesus History, from 2019. Writer historian John Dickinson writes about a social media post that, that annoyed his atheist friends. It was a portion of a 1929 interview of Albert Einstein by journalist George Virick. What annoyed them was Einstein's admiration for a historical figure found in the New Testament Gospels. And here is a bit of that article. And we're looking here at the power of preference to shape beliefs. Here's what it said, Virick to Einstein. To what extent are you influenced by Christianity? Einstein, well, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Virek, you accept the historical existence of Jesus. Epstein's reply, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. How different, for instance, is the impression which we receive from an, an account of legendary heroes of antiquity like uh, Thesis. Thesis and other heroes of this type lack the authentic vitality of Jesus. And so then Dickinson writes in response to this, he writes this, I literally had folks suggesting Virick's interview itself was a fraud. Even though, as I pointed out, it was published in one of the 20th century America's most widely read magazines. I had to dig it out of the archives and post screenshots of the relevant pages of the interview before some would believe that Einstein said such a thing. Such is the power of preference to shape what we Believe. And we see an interesting dichotomy here, right? You have those who really respected and, and, and admired Einstein, but then they didn't care for his admiration of Jesus. It's like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to like Jesus. And it is true. The power of preference to shape what we believe. And today we're going to ask this very basic question. It's right in the sermon title. Why do I believe what I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? And the truth is we all have things we believe, right? We all have sources that we consult. We all have opinions we will receive. Why do I believe what I believe? We all have a mechanic we take our car to, a realtor we take our business to, or a doctor we take ourselves to. We do. We have friends that we seek advice from, and then there's people we won't seek advice from. Why is this the case? Why do I believe what I believe? And we're going to take this this morning, of course, to the issue of our relationship with Christ and our faith and the gospel. Why do I believe what I believe? And, and really, what prompts me to come out and worship on a Sunday morning? I mean, what is it that prompts me to come out? And this morning, we're going to see the more of the story again, and in the process, going to land in a very beautiful place. Even as Bruce is up here reading it, I'm just... You can just feel the gospel pulsating underneath this story in a way that we don't probably readily realize. So we're in this series, more to the story. It's an Easter story that will take us uh, to the cross and out the empty tomb. And it's just a journey with Jesus for these next several weeks. We're looking at some of the stories, some of the miracles, some of the encounters that Jesus had some of the miracles that he did, and we're just seeing in these teachings, there's more to the story. Last week we were in, um, in Cana. I think I put that slide in the wrong place. Um, here we are. Look at this here in John chapter 2, 11. We saw this last week. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So last week, we talked about when Jesus turned the water into wine. And this is the last verse in that story, right? The very last thing, it says this was the first of his signs. And we noted that there are actually eight specific signs, miracles that Jesus does in the book of John that all point to Christ and point to the gospel and show us something that's very important that John wanted us specifically to see. And so we look at that. In fact, if we go on to the very end of John, it says this in chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I got these out of order here, but here's the question. What is the primary purpose behind God's word? That's the second question this morning to kind of zero in on. What's the, what, why did God give us this book? right? 
And hopefully, I think everybody here knows the answer to that question. We can identify several reasons why God gave us the Bible. Clearly, there's lots of reasons. It is filled with wisdom, right? Certainly filled with wisdom. It can give us direction for our life. It can tell us the difference between good and evil and teach us how to live a righteous life. We can even find peace and comfort in the Bible for when we're going through difficult times. But what's the primary reason that God gave us His Word, right? And it's found in this verse right here. It's found in this verse right here. The primary purpose is that I would know Christ and then find my life in Him. This Bible right here is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about who He is and why He came to the earth and what He did and how I can have life through His name. That's the purpose behind God's Word. And that is so incredibly powerful, and we will see that this morning. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And, and, and think about this. Knowing Christ through the Scriptures, there's two ways we can know Christ, right? We can know Him historically. Like, I can know He's the Creator, and He's the Redeemer, and you know he's, I, I can see who He is in that sense, historically. He walked the earth and all that. Then I can know him personally. Like I can open the scriptures and discover who he is personally in my life. What he means to me. How he's reaching out to me. Inviting me into a relationship. So all the miracles Jesus did, like turning the water into wine, the reason he did that, we saw it last week, was what? To say, I am the Christ and you can have life in my name, and it's to point us to the gospel and teach us something about the gospel. What a powerful, what a powerful story last week when you look at the water and, and the wine and all that's going on underneath the scenes and all the sim- symbolism and all the words, all the phrases that are used in there to point us to the gospel. Today we're in John chapter 4. Thank you, Bruce, reading that earlier. What a great story. There's this nobleman who comes to Jesus. He's going to come to Jesus and he's going to want healing for his son. And we're going to see in the same way today, we're going to see the story and the moral of the story and then kind of the more of the story below the surface. Oh, I know what I jumped over earlier. I wasn't out of order. Our series Big Ideas, as we simply said, and that's what was on the screen earlier, is that Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. He just does. He takes the gospel and he makes it easy and accessible for us to understand and relate to and apply to our life. He puts the gospel into everyday language, and that was, I didn't read it close enough, um, and so that's really key. But let's look at this right here. Let's get some context before we get into the story of of, uh, this nobleman today. And we'll start here in John chapter uh, 4, verse 39. Backing up three verses before our text today. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And so what's going on here? John chapter 4, Jesus had, prior to this, met that woman at the well. And remember that she got saved and as she came to faith in Christ, she went back to her hometown and her hometown, hometown got saved. Everybody, in the, everybody was coming to Christ because they were believing the words of what he said. And so he's got this amazing ministry going on, and then after two days, God abruptly says, okay, time to go back home. You're going back to Galilee now, back to to kind of where you did that miracle with the wedding, with the water and the wine at that wedding. And we we kind of scratch our heads and think, well, why would you send him? He's having a great ministry here, why? But the reality is that uh, his ministry was not primarily to the Samaritans, it was He was sent to the Jewish people and primarily operated in that fashion. Today's big idea. What I see can help me believe. We're going to see this in the text. What I see can help me believe. It's okay if what you see helps you believe. But ultimately, what I believe has to help me see. Like I have to grow in my faith and I have to grow in my my belief has to come to a level where it's not just what I see helps me believe, but what I believe actually helps me see. And we're going to see that in the text this morning as Jesus works with this man let's go back to the text here what i believe why i believe what i believe three levels of belief today we're going to go look look at three levels of belief and 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 we're just going to see how god takes our faith deeper and deeper our belief deeper and deeper into him after the two days he departed for galilee for jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his 
own hometown, which is kind of odd, right? It's like, I'm going back to Galilee, but I know in my hometown that I won't be respected or I won't be accepted. And uh, the reason why he's going back there, though, is because, as I said, he was sent to the Jewish people, and he didn't come to be accepted, did he? He came to be rejected. Like, I know I'm going to be rejected, but I came to be rejected and put on the cross. That's kind of hard for us to maybe fathom. But then he says this, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, well, they welcomed him. So at this point, (laughs) they're pretty welcoming. Having seen all that he did, all he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so Jesus heads back down. Now, it's not inherently wrong. Here's the thing. Here's our first level of belief. It's simply this. I can believe because of what I see. Like, I can believe because of what I see. And that's not inherently wrong. The Bible tells us that we can see God in creation, that we can believe in God as we look at creation all around us. So there's nothing inherently wrong with believing, with a seeing that leads to believing. But note this as well. Jesus points out in kind of an ironic fashion here. Like he said, he's going back home, but he won't be accepted in his hometown. But when he comes to Galilee at this time, they all welcome him. Why do they welcome him? Well, what had happened was he had gone to Jerusalem to the Passover feast. And so had most of the other people in Galilee. They had gone down for the feast as was required. And when Jesus was there, he was doing all kinds of miracles. And so they saw him doing all these miracles and they're like, hey, I think he lives back in our town. Like I heard he did something at a wedding back home. And they see him doing all these miracles. And so when he comes into the town, it's like, yeah, they welcome him in. That's the reality. They welcome him in at this point because they're seeing everything he's doing. And this is the key verse here. In, in, verse, uh, in verse 48, he says, So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And he's speaking to this man, but he's really speaking to all of the Jewish people who believed in him because they saw him do some pretty cool things, pretty cool miracles. And so the first level of belief here comes with this warning about superficial belief. Like, beware of superficial belief. Like, you want want belief, and it's okay to believe in what you see, but beware of superficial belief. And this was so clear for the Israelite people. Jesus turned the water into wine, and, and think about some of the things that Jesus did and how he checked some of their boxes. Like, as he's doing these miracles, they begin to realize, hey, he might be the Messiah. And they start watching some of the things that he does, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Jesus checked all the Messiah boxes. Like, remember when he went into the temple and he chased out the money changers and turned over the tables and, yeah. They're like, man, he defended them. Check. And then, remember when he comes here to this story today, this nobleman's son, and he's going to heal this nobleman's son. And it's like, wow. When we're sick, he can heal us. Check. And then we're going to get into John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, he's going to, he's going to feed 5,000 with a few fishes and loaves. And they're all going to be like, wow, he can feed us. Check. And you know what they say after that whole issue there in uh, John 6, after he feeds the 5,000. You know what happens? Look at this the next day. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world perceiving them, Jesus perceiving them that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain, to the mountain by himself. Like, he checked all the boxes and they're like, hey, you know what? You can be our king. You can be our Messiah. You'll defend us. You'll heal us. You'll feed us. Woo, yeah, sign me up. Give me that kind of king. And what happens if you read on, and we're going to be here in a couple weeks, I think, looking at this story, but he... What happens next is he preaches that, that, that famous message about being the bread of life, how you have to eat my body and drink my blood, and it says that a lot of his followers, not the 12, but a lot of the, his followers stopped following him. Maybe some of those 70 disciples stopped following him because his words were too hard. His words were too hard to hear. 
So this is the interesting dichotomy. Jesus does miracles to prove he was sent from God and that he is the Messiah, yet Jesus doesn't want our faith to just be superficial, like, I'll believe in you because of what you can do for me. It doesn't work that way. It's okay if what I see helps me believe, but eventually what I believe has to help me see. Ultimately, that's where my belief needs to go. And we get, we get this picture of the disciples, right? They show a great picture of this imagery for us because think about it, like, they had great faith when Jesus was on the earth, right? I mean, remember Peter? <laughs> I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. But then when Christ went on that cross and went into that grave and the stone was rolled over it, what happened to their belief and their faith and their hope? And it evaporated. It evaporated so badly that even when Jesus rose out of the grave, they still didn't believe. It took them a while to be convinced that Jesus really did rise from the grave. That's how, that's how much they had lost their belief in their faith. So it's okay to believe because of what I see. But we also need to believe even when we can't see. When the stone is rolled over the grave, the tomb, and we can't see Jesus, and we need to believe. Here's the deal, you know what? You know we all believe in something. Like even, even an atheist who doesn't believe in God... Well, he believes in something. He doesn't believe in God. That's his belief. Well, we all believe in something, even if it's nothing. Think about that. It's not if I believe, but what I believe. It's not if I believe, but what I believe. What do I believe? Because we all believe something. I may have shared this before. I saw, I think I saw it in a t-shirt a while back. Something like, I need some new conspiracy theories. All mine have come true. It's like, you know, anymore, you just, it's like, I thought that wasn't true. And then a year later, it's like, oh, I guess that was true. And it's like, but, but it's what do we believe? What do we, uh, uh, what do we um, ultimate, ultimately believe about a number of things? Like, for instance, think about this. What do I believe about sin? What do I believe, what do I believe about God and death and the Bible and eternity? What do I believe about all of these things? That's the reality. It's not just if I believe, but what do I believe? Take the, just take death for, for instance, right? So this, this nobleman comes to Jesus. His son is about to die, and he wants Jesus. And isn't it funny how death can sometimes clarify our beliefs? It's like you get to the point of death, you start to think different about life. What do I believe about eternity? What do I believe about heaven? What do I believe about my priorities? What do I believe about my identity? Death does something for you, right? You just start to clarify all your beliefs. I think that's pretty powerful to stop and think of that simple reality. I remember the story years ago. John Denver died years ago in a single plane, plane crash, like a small plane, plane crash. And I was at a pastor's conference one time and somebody speaking there was speaking on evangelism and they had actually witnessed to John Denver right before he passed away. Like, I can't remember the story. I wish I could remember it better. But it seems like right before he got on the plane and took off, they had witnessed to him and shared the gospel with him and he just was cold to the gospel. And I heard that story forever and I'm like, you know, so sad because you just think John Denver's just lost for eternity because he rejected the gospel. But, but as years went on, I started to look at that story a little differently, and I started to think, you know, what if God wasn't planting a seed? So that when John Denver's in that plane, and that plane starts to go down, John Denver, confronted with that, doesn't start to say, well, what do I believe? Remember that guy that was talking to me about the gospel? Maybe, maybe I do believe something I don't think I believe. And it, Death does that to us, and so it's entirely possible, it's, uh, it's absolutely God that he would do that, that he would reach out and save this man at the last hour because God doesn't want anyone to perish. And the reality is, the reality is, Death can clarify what we believe. It's not just who we believe or what I believe, but, but uh, it's not if I believe, but what I believe. It's not just if I believe, but who I believe. It's who I believe. Who do I believe? Robert Weber in his book, Who Gets to Narrate the World, shares this following story. He said, I was traveling on a plane from San Francisco to Los Angeles a few years ago. I was sitting next to the window reading a Christian book. The man next to me, obviously from the Eastern Hemisphere, asked, are you a religious man? Well, yes, I said. I am too, he responded. We began talking about religion. In the middle of the conversation, I asked him, can you give me a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith? Well, yes, he said. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. We talked about this one-liner, a statement I felt was very helpful. 
After a while, I said, would you like a one-liner that captures the Christian faith? Sure, he responded. I said, we are all part of the problem, and there is only one man who is the solution. His name is Jesus. It's not just if we believe, it's who do you believe? We all believe somebody, right? There's, 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 there's all, all of us have somebody that we believe, even if it's just ourself, even if I just trust myself. It's so great to know that we can believe in Jesus and we'll even see more of what that means in a few moments. It's not if I believe, but ultimately why I believe. That's today's question. Why do I believe what I believe? And this nobleman comes to Jesus for the healing of his son. Jesus is going to confront him with this question. Well, okay, you want me to heal your son? You seem to believe in me. Why do you believe in me? Why do you believe in me? See, see I, can, I can do that. I can heal your son, and I'm going to heal your son. But let me ask you a question. What if I didn't heal your son? Would I still be good? Would I still be God? Would you still believe in me? Is your faith superficial or is it not? So beware of superficial beliefs. Beware of superficial beliefs. I can believe because of what I see and that's okay, but just make sure your beliefs aren't superficial. Today's big idea, what I see can help me believe, but ultimately what I believe needs or has to help me see. Look at the second level of belief here in verses 48 through 50. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So here's our second level of belief. I can believe because of what God said. I can believe because of what God, I can believe because of what I see, but then I can believe because of what God said. Like God said it. And I believe it. And that settles it for me. Old song there, some of you might remember. Now, if the first level of belief seen came with a warning towards superficial belief, this second level of belief comes with a nod towards rational belief. A nod towards rational belief. In fact, it's very rational, right, for this man to believe. I mean, think about it. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him and went on his way. That's very rational. Why? Because if you believe Jesus can really heal supernaturally, then it's very rational to say, well, you don't even have to be there. If you can heal him, you can heal him. Whether you're there and you put your hands on him or don't. It's very rational. And by extension, it's very rational for us to, to believe what God has said in his word. Yeah, the, the, uh, let's be honest. Anybody who does just, just does an intelligent study of God's Word, it's pretty rational to believe in the Bible. There's just no, any, there's no other book like it. There, there's just nothing like the Bible. It's extremely rational. This has been like put through all kinds of studies and proven to be the most accurate book ever written. You don't hear that, of course. But that's the truth. So there's a fascinating dialogue that we can consider here. Jesus kind of questions the man's belief, right? Well, you, you believe because if you see a miracle, you'll believe. And he's going to kind of put him in a precarious situation to say, okay, what if you don't see the miracle? What if it takes a little more faith? What will you do then? Things aren't going as the nobleman envisioned it. He thought that Jesus would go back with him the 20 miles to his hometown, lay his hands on the boy and heal him. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, you can go home. Your son's healed. It's done. And so three things here we can see. Uh, first of all, oh yeah. So Jesus tests the man's faith. First thing he does, he just tests the man's faith. He just kind of puts him to the test. Do you really believe? There's no if in the equation. Note this. Yeah, do you really believe? So he just, he just, he just uh, tests the sincerity of his faith. The second thing he does is he heals the boy first. Like before he heads for home, before he even responds and shows any level of belief or faith, Jesus heals the boy. There's no if in the equation. Jesus didn't say, if you go home, right now you'll find your son is healed. He didn't say that. He said, go home, your son's healed. It's done. Pretty powerful. I think that's pretty significant. And why did he do that? I think because Jesus ultimately knows the man's heart. 
either through spiritual discernment or either through the Holy Spirit giving him divine knowledge, he knew this man's heart and he knew, you know what? This guy really believes. He doesn't have, doesn't have a superficial belief. He really believes that I can do this. He's really putting his faith and trust in me and he reached out and he healed this man. This man believed simply because Jesus spoke. And that's the challenge for us all this morning, right? Well, we believe simply because God said it. Like God said it. It's right here. God said it, so I believe it. That's difficult sometimes. But God said it, and I believe it. That settles it. I can believe whatever's in there because it's God's Word. Now, I want to show you the dynamic for a minute between Jesus and the Word. Because it's an interesting dynamic to kind of look at briefly. Uh, this again is a nod to rational belief. It's very irrational for him to believe Jesus can heal his son. It's very rational for us to believe the scriptures. They've been proven to be accurate. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So what do we see here at the outset here is we have the testimony of Jesus as the Word. Like you think of the relationship between Jesus and the Word, Jesus is the Word. That's the testimony we have there from Scripture. We can't totally understand that, right? You can't understand that. I can't process that. Like, this is Jesus. He is the Word. They are one in a way we can't totally understand comprehend we we see this kind of in hebrews 4 for the word of god is living like this word here is a living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his his sight like it's not it his like this is a person but we all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We give an account to Jesus. So it's, it's just fascinating to think about this reality. We have the testimony that Jesus is the Word of God and there's something powerful about the Word of God to penetrate inside of us, to speak to us, to show us the truth about us. You know, I was thinking this week, it's fascinating. Last week in uh, Thursday night Bible study and, and uh, Wayne read a passage and it was in red letters in the book of Timothy saying it was, it was Jesus' words. It was kind of really helpful to our study. And I thought about that, you know. We get, sometimes people get really excited about the red letter, red letter words in the Bible, right? Like those are the words that Jesus spoke. Like the red letter words are the important words because Jesus spoke them like personally and publicly and yeah. And yet the truth is, no, they're really not any more important than the rest of the Bible because the whole Bible is, is Jesus. The Word of God is the Son of God. The Son of God is the Word of God. In fact, ironically enough, the words in the Old Testament pretty much written to the Jewish nation. The words that Jesus spoke pretty much written to the Jewish nation about this kingdom He's going to have for them one day for a million or for a thousand years. Most of the words that Paul wrote, they're not red letter words, but they're all the, they're, they're, it's all... The, the Word of God, it's all the Son of God. The, the words that Paul spoke are really written directly to you and me today in the body of Christ where there's no Jew or Gentile written to all ethnicities equally on the face of the earth. Kind of ironic to stop and think about how we view God's Word. So the thing is, all of the Word is for me. Some of it is written directly to me and I can believe because of what God has said. That's a totally rational belief let's take it a little deeper look at matthew 7 24 jesus teaching some red letter words here everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them hears these words of mine my, these are my words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Like he taught with more authority than the religious leaders did. We have the authority of Jesus as he spoke the word. Like we have the testimony of Jesus as the word and now we have the authority of Jesus as he spoke the word. 
And when he spoke the word, he spoke it in a way that, well, not many other people did. Like when he spoke the word, when he preached, when he taught, it's like, whoa, there was some recognizable authority there. More so than anyone else, even the religious leaders of his day. Pretty fascinating. Six months before Jesus was crucified, it's the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, I believe. It's like in October. And they wanted to arrest Jesus. And they sent some people to the Feast of Tabernacles to arrest Jesus. There was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and the chief priests and Pharisees said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? No, they weren't deceived. It's just that when Jesus spoke, there was some authority there. There was some authority. Now, it would be easy to say, well, duh, of course. I mean, Jesus is the Word. So, of course, when He spoke, there would be authority. But here's the fascinating thing, right? Luke tells us that Jesus grew intellectually. He grew spiritually. Like, when He came to earth, the Son of God, who was the Word of God, set aside His divine privileges he had to study the Bible like any other Jewish boy and learn it, discover who he was. He had to discover that he was the Messiah. That was part of being, he set aside his divine privileges. He had to operate like a, like a man. So, but still he spoke with this incredible authority. Why? Well, I think he, I think he believed in what he was preaching. I mean, you believe in what you're preaching, you're going to preach with some authority. I think the Spirit was behind his words, and when he spoke, there was just something about the way he preached the Word. And that should be the goal probably of every preacher, to preach the Word of God with the authority of God. Just to preach it, because you know what? God said it. We just believe this because God said it. It's very rational to believe that. Bill Clem was the father of baseball umpires. Uh, colorful, judicious, and dignified. He was beyond passionate about America's favorite pastime, declaring to me, baseball is not a game, but a religion. The, the first umpire to use arm signals while working behind home plate, Bill Ump for 37 years, including 18 World Series. He became known as the old arbiter, arbitrator. A deferential nod to his keen eye for calling balls and strikes. On one such occasion, as he crouched and readied behind the plate, the pitcher threw the ball, the batter didn't swing, and for just an instant, instant Bill said nothing. Batter turned around and snorted, okay, so what was it, a ball or a strike? To which Bill responded, Sonny, it ain't nothing till I call it. <laughs> and that's God's word. It's like, this has an authority because when Jesus spoke it, it had an authority that no one else ever gave it. So Jesus is the word. He spoke the word. And then look at this, this last one, Luke 24 or 44. Luke 24 or 44. Then he said to them, these are my words. I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so here we have the prophetic nature of Jesus as he fulfills the word. Like we have the testimony of Jesus who is the word. And we have the, you know, just, just the, the sense that, that Jesus spoke the authority of the word and here we have the prophetic nature of Jesus as he fulfills the word. Like the scriptures all spoke about him and he comes along and fulfills them. Jesus himself says the Old Testament writings are significantly important to validating exactly who he, who he is and why he came. The simple truth is our faith would not be as strong today if we did not have the Old Testament writings that validate so much of who Jesus was and why he came. So much of our faith today is, is, of what we believe is reinforced by the Old Testament authors and the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And to be honest, think about this. This is how Jesus discovered who he was. By studying those Old Testament prophets and reading and realizing they're writing about me. I, I was born that way. I, I, this, this, this describes my life. I am the Messiah. Pretty, pretty amazing. In the final analysis, I can believe because of what God has 
said. And it's very rational to believe God's word because it's been authenticated by all of these prophecies written hundreds of years beforehand, and they all come true. It's very rational to believe God's word. What I see can help me believe, but ultimately what I believe has to help me see. What I believe has to help me see deeper into God's word, to see, to see what God's doing around me, to receive it all by faith. Let's look at the third level of faith or belief this morning. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them what the hour so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live, and he himself believed. And all his household, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the second of those eight signs. It's pretty, miracle, pretty powerful, but here we have, I can believe because of who God is. I can believe based on what I see. I can believe because of what God said, and I can believe ultimately because of who God is. This is our third level of belief this morning. And this will take us into a little bit of the more of the story once again. Things get really good here. But I want you to just kind of walk through this a, a little bit here again, right? So Jesus said to him in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's beware of superficial belief. And then in verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. There's the nod to rational belief. And then here we have verse 53, the father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household, this is the invitation to a personal belief. Like he's being invited to a personal belief. And I think it's pretty fascinating in the story that he believed. It says he believed and he went home towards his son, believing Jesus had healed him. And yet five verses later it says, and he himself believed in all his household. And I think there's like, a, like the belief goes a little deeper. Like the, the belief goes beyond just, oh, I believe you healed my son. It's like, you know what? I, I believe in you. Like, like I'm going to invest my life in you. Like I'm going to follow you. I just think the belief goes to a more personal level. For him and his entire family, as if now there was an investment in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that's what God was doing when he healed this, 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 this man's son. Was, we're not just healing his son, but inviting him into a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship. And this is our reality. When we take the scriptures, we take the, the theological truths here, we take the rational truths here, and we apply it to our personal life. Powerful things can happen. We can have a very personal belief. Remember again what it said back in John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. These miracles all have the this, this same goal, that we would know that Jesus is the Christ that we would find life in his name. And he did these miracles, but then he codified those miracles in the Bible for you and me. Thousands of years later, we can read them. It's really powerful. So what we see here as we look here to the more of the story, think about this, is the miracle that God does in this boy's life in some ways is symbolic of the spiritual miracle of resurrection that he does in our own life. This boy is at the point of death, right? And we are all at the point of death. Because of sin, that's where we're all at. And so let's look here briefly at the more of the story. And, and, and here's the thing. As I looked at this this week, you know, I, I prayed over this because it's like the wedding, the, the story of the wedding, you know, and the story of the Good Samaritan, like the symbolism and the phraseology is so obvious and so powerful. And I saw a few things in here, but I'm like, am I just kind of forcing something here that's not here? And even as... As Bruce was reading it this morning, I'm just hearing it. I'm thinking, boy, this is, yes, underneath all of this, there is just a nod to the gospel again. Let me show you one of the great parallels, really contrasts here. In this story, in this story, there is a father who intervened and spared the death of his son. And that is contrasted with a father who did not intervene and did not spare the death of his son. Like we can see Jesus in the garden the night before he's arrested. He's in there and he's intensely praying, crying out to God. Lord, if there's just another way, if there's a way out, if you can just deliver me from this hour. And he didn't. God didn't intervene. 
God allowed his son to go to the cross and die. Jesus was at the point of death and he went on to take on spiritual death and to die on that cross because his father didn't intervene when this father did. Pretty, pretty powerful. And the pain that the, the pain this dad is experiencing, right? He comes to Jesus because he's in pain because his son's about to die. And I think sometimes when Jesus is on the cross, we think, well, that's God. It didn't really hurt God that much. When No, it hurt the father to have his son on the cross, to have his son taking on all of humanity's uh, de- uh, uh, sin and wickedness and evilness and brokenness and hopelessness. And it hurt the father, but he didn't intervene. He didn't intervene. He allowed his son to die. And look at this reality. You know what happened? Think about this. Because the father didn't intervene at the cross, he can now intervene in us. Forgiving our sin and making us alive in Christ because he didn't intervene. Because he let his son go to the cross and die. Now he can intervene in our lives. Our dead spirits can be made alive in Christ. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Then I saw this. In the story, he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, will you come down? Will you come down and heal my son? I just think that's fascinating because, well, look what it has in in Scripture here. Jesus did not come down but was lifted up. In the gospel, he didn't come down, but he was lifted up. Look what it says in in Mark 15. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, Wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And I never noticed this before, but it's great to kind of interesting to contrast those with these scriptures. And there's several of these in John. Here's three of them. John, 31, or John 3, 14, I think it is. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 8, 28, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And in John 12, 32, and, when, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus on the cross, He didn't come down. He was lifted up. He didn't, he didn't come down or go down to save that young man's life. He looked up to save that young man's life. And He was lifted up to save your and our life at Calvary. How amazing How amazing, amazing. There's a couple other hints in here to the gospel. One of them we find in the the curious time. Like it gives us the specific time the boy is healed. It's like why would he be deliberate in saying the boy was healed at this time? I thought that was fascinating to stop and think about. He He was actually healed on the seventh hour. Now to understand time, Jewish time was like, well, for instance, Jesus was crucified on the third hour, which was nine in the morning, and he died at the ninth hour, which was six o'clock. He was on the cross for six hours, from three in the morning till, or from nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. But at the same time, you can, you can see there, there's Jewish time, the third hour, which is nine o'clock. And the seventh hour here would be one o'clock. So this, this boy is healed at one o'clock. He starts recovering. That's when this, this man got this miracle. But I thought it's fascinating that the young man was healed in the seventh hour. And you know what that could be a subtle reference to is? You know what? But the work of the gospel was finished at the seventh hour. Like Christ was on the cross for six hours, and on the seventh hour he was in paradise, and the work was done on the seventh hour, just as this boy was recovering on the seventh hour. And you might think that's odd, but there's, it's really interesting, right? Like in the scriptures, we have like 6,000 years from Adam to today. And then we're waiting for that 1,000-year millennial kingdom, which I think is really due to come very soon. It's like you have 2,000 years from Adam and Eve to Abraham and 2,000 from Abraham to Jesus and 2,000 from Jesus to us. 6,000 years, six days, waiting for that 7,000th year, waiting for that seventh day. And here you have Jesus. I never saw this before. He's on the cross for six hours. And on the seventh hour, the work was done. The work was finished. So amazing. I also 
ran by this one. We talk about this a lot, right? That like Jesus had the faith and we just believe. Jesus went to the cross and had the faith that his death could save us and he would come out of the empty tomb. And I looked at that in the story and I thought it's pretty fascinating, right? Because Jesus had the faith, right? Jesus didn't go down to heal this boy in person. He just believed that if he said that boy would be healed, the father would do it. He had the faith and the father believed in the work that Jesus did. The father believed in the work that Jesus did. What a great shout out to the gospel as well for you and I today. And then, just note this. This is interesting, right? So if you're this, if you're this father and your son is healed at one o'clock in the afternoon and you got an eight-hour journey home, that's about how it was, 20 miles a, a day's journey, you'd be home about nine o'clock. I mean, I think I'd take off for home. I want to go home and see my son. Did he get healed? And yet here he is the next day. Almost like leisurely taking his stroll home. And here come his servants towards him, bringing the news. Hey, your son, he was healed. Yesterday at 7 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he could have been home, but he wasn't. The next day he's still heading home because the gospel brings us peace and rest. The gospel just gives us a, a sense of calmness in the turmoils of life. Because he believed, because he had faith in Christ, he had the peace of Christ as well. So why do I believe what I believe? That's the question we started with today. What prompts me to come out and worship? I believe what I believe. Well, why? One, thing, one reason why I believe what I believe is because my belief, the Christian faith, is not a superficial belief, right? It's not superficial. That's the whole point. In fact, it's very rational to believe that Jesus Christ, because history backs it up, because prophecy backs it up, because the scriptures back it up. So I don't, why, why, why do I believe? Because as Jesus said, the Christian faith is not superficial. It's extremely rational, but even more than being rational, it is personal. Because Christ saves us. And when he saves us, he comes into our life. He radically changes our life. He forgives our sin. He makes us alive. He begins to help us, right, see. Like, like, my, like initially I believe because I see, but eventually, initially what I see helps me believe, but eventually what I believe helps me to see, helps me to trust, helps me to have peace, helps me to have hope in the midst of a troubled world. What a great story again. Just the way that God tucks the gospel away Puts it in everyday language and um, just reaches out to us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the story. Thank you for this, uh, this nobleman. We could have talked more about him today. We didn't really get into exactly who he is. He was kind of an important person, had a, kind of an, an important job to an important individual. But he was touched, he was touched by the by the reality of sin, by the reality of death, by pain, just like any of us are. And you reached out to him and you did a work in his life, but it's ultimately symbolic of the work that you want to do in our life spiritually. That, that you want to save us, you want to heal us spiritually. You put all these things in Scripture so that we would believe you are the Christ and that by believing we would find life in your name. And I pray today that we will go home and we will know if we put our faith and trust in you, if we believed and received, this week we can find life in your name. This week you are more than enough for us. Thank you that our faith is not superficial. Thank you that our faith is rational, but even more so thank you, Lord, that this faith is incredibly, incredibly personal. In Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen.